Deceptions Podcast. Bede invents the English as a single people who are bound together by their ethnic Anglo-Saxon identity, by the fact that they have a past that they share. They're all migrant peoples who've come to live together on this island, that they speak this language that they have together and that they are bound by their worship of the same God and their adherence to the one true faith. That's Sarah Foote, Regis Professor of Ecclesiastical History at the University of Oxford. I've wanted to get her on the show for ages, ever since I heard her in a seminar on this topic at Oxford some years ago. She's talking here about the Venerable Bede, a towering figure of the Middle Ages. Just because Mark Hadley had never heard of him doesn't mean he's not a significant figure. And we've been threatening to introduce you to Bede for some time now, and that time has come to the great rejoicing of Director Mark. And we've got the perfect person to lead the way for us alongside her many publications and projects. Sarah has emerged as one of the foremost authorities on Bede. She's currently working on a major scholarly biography of Bede, as well as a translation of Bede's most famous work, The Ecclesiastical History of the English People, for the Oxford World Classics series. Historians have long recognised Bede as the greatest Anglo-Saxon scholar of his day, and he certainly is the father of English history. His contributions on numerous academic and religious fronts were so significant that his works are still in use nearly 1,300 years after his death. I'll be lucky if anyone's still reading Dixon in 13 years. Yet for all this, Bede is hardly known outside the circles of academics and English history buffs. The fact is, we owe so much to him for our understanding of the origins of the English world, a world that spawned mighty civilizations, including the US and New Zealand. So today, we're pleased to introduce you to the Venerable Bede. I'm John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions. This season of Undeceptions is sponsored by Zondervan Academic. Get discounts on master lectures, video courses and exclusive samples of their books at zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. Don't forget to write Undeceptions. Each episode here at Undeceptions, we explore some aspect of life, faith, philosophy, history, science, culture or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. And with the help of people who know what they're talking about, we're trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out.
This episode of Undeceptions is proudly brought to you by Zondervan Academics' new book, Know the Theologians, written by podcast alumni Jennifer Powell McNutt and David McNutt. The McNutts invite us to meet the theological giants of the centuries, whose ideas have shaped not just Christianity, but also our world, whether you're a believer or a doubter. They cover a dozen or more pivotal figures spanning Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholics, and the Protestant traditions. This book is an excellent, readable introduction to the biggest names in Christian thinking. Whether you're embarking on a personal quest for knowledge or seeking a material for a kind of book club, I honestly reckon Know the Theologians has you covered. Each chapter is packed with insights, reflection questions, and recommended readings. You can order your copy of Know the Theologians today on Amazon, of course, or visit zondervan.com forward slash undeceptions. Don't forget to write forward slash undeceptions, and you can learn more. This conference that we went to in Sydney, the conference was opened by, I don't know, the provost, some really senior person in arts. And she stood there and she stared at us all and she said, I'm enjoying this so much. You all look so terrible after having just got here. This is what we feel like when we go to your conferences. Yes, indeed. I'm more than a little tired from an overnight flight from Chicago and then a bus ride up to Oxford. And I think it shows. I had director Mark and editor Rich there too, and they had come from Australia, so they were worse. Hence Sarah's gentle quip. But I'm sitting there happily ensconced in Sarah's meeting room at the top of the astonishingly beautiful sandstone monolith that is Christchurch College University of Oxford. Part of Harry Potter was filmed there. Where else would you want to be to learn about someone like the Venerable Bede? I am so excited to have you on the show because I have been talking about getting Sarah Foote on the show and doing an episode on Bede. And I've had to convince my team that Bede is a venerable topic. So can you just, for the sake of my team anyway, (laughs) give me the 30-second elevator pitch. Why the Venerable Bede is worth an entire episode. Bede is the most important person writing in Latin in England in the period between the fall of Rome and the Norman Conquest in the middle of the 11th century. He writes more, he writes in more different disciplines, and he has a more long-lasting impact than any other single person who lived in pre-conquest Anglo-Saxon England. That's a good elevator pitch. Bede was born around AD 673 into a world that had been shaped by the Roman Empire but had largely forgotten its origin story. Britain had been significantly moved toward Christianity during the Roman period, but when Roman troops were pulled out to fight the barbarians in the 5th century, things started to come unstuck. Both the government and the church fell apart pretty quickly, and over the next two centuries, England was settled or conquered, or a bit of both, by a range of different people from across the channel, the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes. The things they all had in common were Germanic languages uh, that were roughly comprehensible to each other, and 
the worship of pagan gods. So an England that had been partially Christianized started to be unwound and paganized in that period. But all of this changed with a second wave of Christianity in the 6th century, about 100 years before Bede. I asked Sarah, who were the missionaries, the evangelists, the Billy Grahams of that time who made all the difference? So if we could ask Bede this question, he has a really clear answer. Who was the apostle to the English? It was Pope Gregory the first, who sent missionaries from his own monastery in Rome on the Celian Hill to England. He sent a group of them led by a man whose name was Augustine. They left Rome in 596. And it's, they, not, it's not the Augustine that we've done a show on before. That's, nope, not Augustine of Hippo, <laughs> Augustine of Canterbury. Got it. They set off from Rome probably by sea. They started to travel up the Rhone Valley through France and they hadn't got very far when I like to imagine them somewhere, you know, maybe Nîmes or Arles, they're sitting underneath a tree, they're sipping some of the local rosé, and they say, actually, there's quite a lot of mission and evangelization we could do round here. Why would we want to go to this country where we can't speak the language, where they are very fierce barbarians, they worship sticks and stones, and frankly, we're really likely to get killed. So Augustine went back to Rome and said to Gregory, do you know, we don't really want to go. And Gregory said, come on, get a grip. You need to go. This is a people who need to hear the good news of the Bible. He gave them some extra help. He got some extra help as they were traveling through France. They took interpreters with them. And they landed just off the eastern coast of Kent, an island then, a separate island of Thanet, and were met with some consternation by the king and his men there, who weren't willing at first to meet them inside because they didn't know quite what magic they might have brought with them. But Augustine and his followers persuade the people of Kent to convert. And there's then a Roman mission that works its way up the eastern seaboard, clearly traveling from kingdom to kingdom round the coast. So Kent, and then Essex with its capital in London, and then they went to East Anglia, and then they got as far as Northumbria, and Paulinus, another Roman missionary, converts the Northumbrian king, Edwin, a big set-piece baptism scene on Easter Day in the year 627. Sarah, of course, rattles off these place names without a second thought. She would probably be as much at home in the England of the Middle Ages as she is the England of the 21st century. But we don't expect you to be carrying around a map of medieval England in your head. So we've put a link in the show notes to a really good one that lays out all these kingdoms. And at one level, at least the eastern side of Anglo-Saxon England, is at that point nominally Christian. Those royal courts up the east side have all converted. But when those kings died, their sons didn't necessarily keep following the new religion, and they gradually slipped back into paganism. And it takes two more missionary impulses to make the conversion permanent. The first is brought to Northumbria by Edwin's successor, Oswald, who'd been in exile on the Scottish island of Iona, just off the southwestern coast of Scotland, a monastery with Irish monks, followers of St. Columba. Oswald brought a group of monks from Iona to his kingdom in Northumbria. They set up a base at Lindisfarne. And then using slightly different methods from the Romans, they then converted the Northumbrians and the faith trickled back south again with the help from a number of missionaries from France in the same time in Wessex, Agilbert in, in Wessex, Felix among these East Angles. 
Regular listeners might remember our Vikings episodes, where we talked about the rise of Christianity among the Germanic people of Northern Europe. Again, the links are in the show notes. In those episodes, we talked about how the transformation of Viking culture was partly top-down, you know, warlords demanding conversion, and partly bottom-up, powerless missionaries trying their best to convince people of the strange news of the crucified God. Well, something similar went on in England in the centuries before the Vikings. Our narrative for how this happens comes entirely from Bede's ecclesiastical history, Bede's history of the English church and people. And Bede tells it as a top-down story. Missionaries sent by major churches go to kings, often kings who have Christian wives, which is a subplot that repeats several times over, The king converts, his court converts, and it trickles down to the wider population at varying degrees of speed, which Bede never talks about. There has to have been mission and evangelization in the western side of England, which Bede never talks to us about, and it clearly didn't work top down. It clearly worked from the bottom up, and there are not great evangelizing missionary bishops who are remembered as saints, The most likely explanation is that the church from Roman Britain did not entirely die out in the Western British parts of England, that in fact it wasn't a pagan desert. There were Christians there and those British Christians talked and intermarried and did the missionary work from the bottom up with Anglo-Saxons in the Western areas so that by Bede's day there are bishoprics in Hereford and Worcester in these places where we know nothing about how they were initially converted. The British on are the anti-heroes of Bede's history, and he wouldn't want you to think that the Britons had done any important mission because <laughs> he largely thought that they didn't do it. So that's a bit of the story about which he's silent. In Bede's time, monasteries were places of prayer, study, and manual labour for monks and nuns who'd committed themselves to living in community according to very strict religious rules. That didn't stop them having a profound effect on the world around the monasteries. They were central to the religious, cultural, and intellectual life of England. They served as centres of learning and included scriptoriums where manuscripts were copied and illuminated. And yes, we are planning to do a full episode on monasteries somewhere in the future, perhaps season 15 at this rate. Anyway, Bede was born, as I said, sometime around 673. AD, that is. And from his earliest days, he had an association with one of these monastic communities. Let's talk about his life. What do we know about his upbringing, his social status, and his education in particular? We only know what Bede chose to tell us about his background and his family. And what is most interesting about it is the things about which he is silent. Bede says that he was born on land that later belonged to the monastery and that when he was age seven, his relatives put him into the church at Wearmouth where he spent the rest of his life. And it's really interesting. He doesn't say, my father and mother. He says, my relatives. And I've come to think that Bede was probably an orphan and that the reason why he was given into the church at the age of seven is that his parents had died. 
The monastery at Wymouth was founded by a man who took the name in religion, Benedict Bishop, who is related to Edgefrith, the King of Northumbria at the time, very high social status of enough wealth to make several journeys to Rome and come back with a large number of books and precious objects for his monastery. It would be really lovely to say that Bede came from a peasant family and that the monastery felt so sorry for this poor little orphan that they took him in among their midst. I'm afraid I don't think it's remotely likely. I think it's very likely that Bede was born of a noble family, one possibly that had connections with the royal family or one with Benedict Bishop's family had some connections with so that this was a child that they were willing to take over. It's perfectly possible that there was a cash donation or some land that came from the wider family with him. But Bede talks intermittently through his life about orphans. On his deathbed, he makes a reference to being an orphan. And there's a line in his commentary on the book of Proverbs when he talks about the scriptural line is, be careful before you move the boundary stone of someone who is an orphan or has apparently no family because you don't know who their relatives are who might come and wish to argue with you. And Bede says that he, it, to the effect that it doesn't matter, that he doesn't know who his family are because God is his father and will always look after him, which just makes you wonder. Bede wasn't just a religious zealot. He became a highly educated man with expertise in a wide range of topics, including history, the natural sciences, observational astronomy, and mathematics. He is a true polymath. He was also a skilled linguist, able to read and write in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, as well as local languages. That meant he could draw on a wide range of sources from all over the Western world. In fact, he was forever asking travelling monks to borrow books from other monasteries in other countries. He was obviously someone of exceptional natural ability, not just privilege. Can you tell us something about his education? Do we know much about education in this period? He was educated in the monastery and he will have been taught first to learn the key texts of the monastic office, which he was going to be reciting as a monk throughout his life. So he will have started by learning the Psalter. He'll have learned the Psalms. And while he was learning them orally, he was, they will also have been teaching him to read and write. We should remember that Bede is learning the texts of the Christian church in Latin. Bede will have spoken, we know he spoke the vernacular Old English, this Germanic inflected language. So he's got to learn the foreign language of the church and to read and write simultaneously. So I often use the example with my students that it, it's as if we now confront a text in Hebrew or Greek or Arabic and you, you've just no idea where to start because the whole thing is so alien. And, it's, and in his childhood culture, it's very unlikely that he encountered the written word at all. It's unlikely his parents had any books. So everything will have been very different and he will have learned orally and in writing at the same time. But clearly he showed massive talent very quickly. Wimouth and the Associated Sister Monastery at Jarrow, founded a few years afterwards, and the two are very intimately connected. They had the biggest library in Western Europe outside Rome. <laughs> First and foremost, though, Bede was a man of Christian faith. He's a Benedictine monk who would eventually be named a doctor of the church, which means one of the foundational teachers 
He was called venerable, one step down from a saint in the Catholic Church, because of his extreme piety and devotion to Christianity from the day he came to the monastery at Jarrow. From that time, Bede wrote, I have spent the whole of my life within that monastery, devoting all my pains to the study of the scriptures and amid the observance of the monastic discipline and the daily charge of singing in the church. It has ever been my delight to learn or teach or write. Bede's faith was the driving force behind all of his work. This was a period when Christians had come to see that all true knowledge was, in a sense, knowledge of God himself and his world. They were developing a kind of theology of education that would come to full flourish a century after Bede in the figure of another Englishman known as Alcuin of York. And there is definitely another episode on him in the pipeline. Anyway, for Bede, even writing a sweeping history of England was a sacred task. The point of his history of the English church and people is to demonstrate to his readers how it was that this pagan Germanic people living at the outer edges of the world, an island people, a Gentile people, but a people whom God had always foreknown how it was that they came to be brought inside the church and thus the whole body of believing, believing Christians, past, present and future. So the purpose of that history is to locate the English inside the much larger frame of God's plan for the whole of humanity. And he does this in a variety of ways, some of which are more subtle than others. But one of the ways in which he shows how the English fit into the divine plan is to set their story on a temporal line of time that has elapsed since the incarnation. So you need to unpack that for us. So in the seventh and eighth century, there was no widely accepted mechanism for dating events along a single timeline. So people would date events. In Rome, they dated events according to who, who was the consul in Rome. They dated events on a 15-year cycle called indictional cycles, which are to do with tax records. It's a system that goes back to the time of Diocletian and Constantine, and it repeats on a 15-year cycle. So you always know if it's the 12th indiction, you can work out where you are on, on that cycle. You might count time since the foundation of the city of Rome, for which a nominal gate is given, and then you can count the years since then. Bede chose to locate the story of the English according to the number of years that had passed since the incarnation. And so to use what we would call Anno Domini dating. And Bede is always said to have invented AD dating, which he absolutely didn't. That was Dennis the Little, wasn't it? That's right. He acquired the system from Dionysius Exiguus, whose method for calculating the date of Easter is the one that Bede promotes. Dennis the Little dated by Anno Domini. Bede dates every year, the year since the incarnation of our Lord, which I think is a really subtly interesting, different way of thinking about it. But the year since the incarnation is how he dates every event. But what he does thereby, and then to count the numbers 
since the year of the birth of Christ, is then to give you a fixed scale and a fixed scale against which you can measure other events. And Bede sets the history of the English in the context of other events that are happening at the same Yes, time. one of those other events are the Eastern emperors, the Byzantine emperors. He will occasionally mention who was a Byzantine emperor at that time. That, that threw me. Why is he doing that? Did people around here actually know who was the Eastern emperor? The vast majority of people here no would have no idea, but Bede's understanding... If you're the, one of those people who have no idea about the Byzantine Empire, fear not, nor remain innocent. We did a whole episode on it last season. It was a cracker. It's called, of course, Byzantine Empire. We'll put a link in the show notes. Idea, but Bede's understanding that the empire which had started in Rome and then the second Rome um, in Constantinople and that Eastern Empire had continued and was continuing and based on those earlier foundations. That's something he's very conscious of. So he knows these. So is he Church. thinking in terms of it's a Christendom, like he's connecting what's happening here with with a wider world of believers all following the incarnate Christ. And his message is that the pagan English can become part of that world too. Mm -hmm. And so having been converted, they're part of something massively bigger than they. Bede wrote his own little library of books, and these got added to the libraries in which he worked. Actually, they got added to the monastic libraries throughout Europe. He wrote 40 books, most of which survive. He wrote poetic works on spelling conventions and poetic metre. His scientific treatises, including De Natura Rerum, On the Nature of Things, which is an encyclopedic compendium of contemporary theories on cosmology, time and arithmetic. And his book, De Temporum Rationi, On the Reckoning of Time, instructs his readers about, among other things, the use of different calendars and the calculation of Christian holy days, like Easter. And then there are his histories. Bede is most remembered for his Historia Ecclesiastica Gentis Anglorum, Ecclesiastical History of the English People, in five volumes. It remains the definitive work on the history of ancient England. We'll get back to that one a little later. But the study of scripture was Bede's happy place. In fact, 80% of what he penned was on biblical interpretation. The explanation of the apocalypse by Bede. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. The fashion of this world will pass away by the conflagration of the supernal fires, that when the heaven and the earth are changed for the better, the incorruption and immortality of holy bodies may have a condition of existence corresponding with the twofold change. As to what he says here, there was no longer any sea. Whether it is dried up in that extreme heat, or whether it is also changed for the better, I could not easily say. For we read of a new heaven and a new earth as future, but not also of a new sea. But it is not unusual in prophetical language to intermix metaphysical with proper terms. It may perhaps be that he has represented the turbulent life of this age, which will then come to an end under the name of the sea. He wrote commentaries. He wrote what you might call scientific 
or astronomical treatises. Can you give us a sense of the sorts of different things he wrote? Bede would want me to start with his Bible commentaries. At the end of his history, he gave a list of his complete output. And these are the books I wrote. And he said, I spent my whole career interpreting scripture for people. His desire was to learn and to teach and to write. And it's the interpretation of scripture, which is for him at the heart of his work. So he wrote commentaries on several different books of the Bible from the early chapters of Genesis through to Revelation, commentaries on two gospels, Mark and Luke, wrote the first ever commentary on the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. How good are his commentaries? I mean, could I ever turn it up and get a good sermon idea out of it? I have had sermon ideas out of Bede's <laughs> commentaries, not infrequently. Some of it's extremely literal. His commentaries get more complex as he worked through his career. And it's, it's possible to work out how he worked. He had access to this amazing library in Wormouth and Jarrow, which was stuffed full of earlier biblical commentaries. And it, it's clear that what he did was to, he would read Augustine and he would find a passage of explanation that he thought was helpful. And so he'd write it out on a little scheduler, a docket, a, a six by four card, as it were. And then he'd read some Ambrose and he'd write that out and he clearly indexed them according to the scriptural verse to which they were referring. And then they are laid out on tables round the scriptorium. It's obviously working on more than one commentary simultaneously and seemingly other people are writing it down for him. And I think he walks to the table and says, okay, so we're thinking about Luke and we're going to do the nativity itself. So that Caesar Augustus sent out a decree that all the world should be taxed. What does Ambrose say about that? Oh yes, I've got that. Now write this down here. And then you get a bit of Gregory and then we'll move on to another verse. And he'll tell you what other writers have thought, but then he'll step aside and give you his own insights. He's very interested in place names. So he'll often tell you what a place name means. So the Lake of Gennesaret, he'll discuss what that means. And then he'll start talking about what it's like looking out over water. He'll talk about storms on the water, how the surface of the water is disturbed. He'll talk about the calling of Andrew and Peter. He'll talk about the calling of the disciples, taking the sons of Zebedee away from their nets. And he'll talk to you about nets and fishing and ships and anchors. Bede knew quite a lot about the sea and he's quite interested in maritime life. He'd describe a city, he'll tell you, he'll explain to you what the name of that city will mean and he'll be using a whole range of sources and then his, his own imagination. And he does that through the ecclesiastical history as well, he all does, the yes. time. He loves words and he drills down where this word came from. And, but it may have come from this. He's a delight to read, very curious. He's got access to a lot of things to look things up, but also I think we have to bear in mind how much of this was in his head and how much he managed to absorb. Mm. And his eye for detail and the amount that he can remember and draw on. People are increasingly talking about the way Bede must have worked with a group of people. Mm -hmm. Because we can't believe one man could do all that or? It's an awful lot for one person to have done, but there's one thing that Bede's community produced which absolutely has to have been a big team effort. In this period, books of the Bible normally circulate in, in small manuscripts. The Gospels might go together. The, some of the history books of the Old Testament might circulate together. The five books of the Pentateuch might be inside hardcovers. It's very rare to have whole Bibles. 
The community at Wormouth and Jarrow in the time of Bede created three complete Bibles, one of which survives. The Codex Amiatinus in a library in Florence was in England briefly about five years ago for an exhibition. What's at he doing the in British Florence? Museum. It was supposed to be a present from the abbot of Wimouth Jarrow to give to the Pope. And he set off for Rome in 716 to take it to Rome. And it had a beautiful inscription on the front leaf, giving it, Chelfrith, abbot at the ends of the world, giving it to the Pope. And Chelfrith died en route. And they tried to carry on with the manuscript and they only got as far as Northern Italy and they never got to Rome and this monastery acquired it. And that's where it is. And they then scrubbed out the inscription on the front page and inserted another one. That manuscript is the work of many scholars mm. working together to produce and a much improved text of the Bible. So Bede is in a community of people that's reading the Bible thinking about its language, looking at Jerome's translation and saying, don't think that's what the Greek says here, starting to work on Hebrew texts as well as on the Septuagint. He's not, you don't imagine a little shy man who's not maybe very socialized sitting in a cell by himself. He's in a busy scriptorium, there's a lot of people around him. He's almost certainly the intellectual superior of everybody around him but there are other people spurring him on. All this goes together to make up a picture of a busy, very intellectually powerful period. And it's all happening in what people outside academia anyway still call the Dark Ages, which is just nuts. We are developing a show on the Dark Ages, of course. But let me point you to the episode that isn't on the Dark Ages, but sort of tangentially relates. It's called Medieval Science. We had the amazing Seb Falk on the show. He's from the Faculty of History at the University of Cambridge. And his book, The Light Ages, is a perfect work of undeception. He shows just how many church figures were making great advances in astronomy and mathematics in this period. Anyway, that's back at episode 74. I know Seb Falk talks about Bede invented a finger counting system that can get you to 10,000. I've seen a little YouTube clip of Seb explaining it, that Bede invented this way of indicating one to 10,000 on your hands. Yes, Bede had extremely <laughs> advanced numerological skills and mm -hmm. understanding, and he is fascinated not only in sharing that knowledge, but in explaining to other people how they also can use his mathematical understanding. And he's obviously, a huge amount of this is happening in their heads. This is high level mental arithmetic. So if you want, what Bede wanted to do was to teach the people around him how to calculate the date of Easter properly. And that involves doing a whole series of different calculations to get you a series of different numbers, which will finally give you the right answer. And as he talks you through how to do that, he also teaches you the arithmetic that you need to know. So one of the things that you need to know is how old the moon was on the 1st of January in the year in which you're trying to work out when Easter will be. And so he takes you through a calculation. You come to a point where you need the 59 times table. And he recites the 59 times table. 1 times 59 is 59. 2 times 59 is 118. And to 6 times 59, you don't need more than that because all that together takes you now, beyond... Guys, all together now. <laughs> beyond 365, you don't need to go beyond 6 times 59. And the answer in all these long divisions, the answer is always the remainder. 
So you have to be able to do the sum and then you know what the remainder is and then that, that will give you the answer that you need. And so this big book that he wrote on the reckoning of time is absolutely jam-packed full of mental arithmetic exercises like that. Amazing. Astronomy? Is- what about astronomy? I mean, because that's connected to the date of Easter. But what does he write about the stars? I mean, it's obviously observational astronomy. It's not astronomy like we know it today. No, it, it is observational astronomy, but let's be very clear. Bede knew absolutely that the Earth was round. He understood. Sorry, Sarah, this was the Dark Ages. They didn't know that. <laughs> Bede explains to you why we know the Earth is round, because he talks about the curved, the curved horizon. And he knows that the stars that we can see in the Northern Hemisphere sky are not the stars that you see in the sky of the Southern Hemisphere. He is extreme because calculating the date of Easter means synchronizing a solar and a lunar calendar. He is extremely interested in the moon and the moon's workings. He uses astronomical data to think about creation. So it was argued by earlier writers that the first day of, of creation was the spring equinox because that's the point where the moon is full and you would have sun and moon equally through the 12 hours of day and 12 hours of night. And Bede said, hang on a minute, that can't possibly be right. God doesn't create the lights in the sky until the fourth day of creation. But the fourth day of creation, when you have 12 hours of day and 12 hours of night, must have been the spring equinox. So he uses his biblical understanding and his understanding of astronomy in order to work out when it was that the world was created, so four days before the spring equinox. Oh, dear. He is also the first person lucidly to explain why the moon determines the phasing of the tides. And this brings us back to Bede's interest in and obsession with the sea. Bede lived on the north coast. He could watch the tides coming in and out. And he worked out that the phasing of the tides works with the waxing and waning of the moon. And it seems likely that he had observers up and down the north coast also marking the tide on the beach and sending their observations back for, for him. So he got further than earlier thinkers in explaining that. Well, and that's an empirical approach to knowledge. Very much so. Huh. Before the 16th century? And a willingness to challenge his mm-hmm. earlier pagan classical Roman and patristic sources and saying, no, I don't think this is right because my observation would lead me to different answers. So the Venerable Bede is not just a good guy, he's a good scientist, a good grammarian and a good theologian. But is Bede a good historian? Does his need to relate everything back to spiritual matters mess with his ability to record facts about early English history? Good question, Dixon. Stay with us. Imagine a world where you have to worry each day about where you're going to get clean water where access to clean water is literally a lifeline. In the East African nation of Burundi, that is the sad reality. 86% of the population lives in extreme poverty, and more than half the children under five suffer from frequent diarrheal diseases due to lack of clean water. 
Anglican Aid is working on the ground with local organisations to change this. They're improving natural springs to give local families clean drinking water, which, can you believe this, cuts their medical bills by 30%. Now, for Aussies, the end of the financial year is approaching. Yes, American friends, the Aussie financial year is almost as weird as yours. For Aussies, this is a great time to make a tax-deductible donation to Anglican Aid. For the rest of the world, when isn't a good time to help families in Burundi access clean water? Will you please head to anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions and make a donation before the 30th of June if you're an Aussie or, you know, if you're anywhere in the world, because every donation makes a huge difference. That's anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions. Thanks so much. We are so grateful to our friends at Morling College for their support of the Undeceptions podcast. And they've just launched Morling to Go a free series of short courses for you to explore key questions about the Christian faith, like why believe in God? That's a good one. How can a good God let bad things happen? Or simply, why Jesus? You can check out the free Morling to Go series and other study options hand-picked specifically for Undeceptions listeners. Just go to morling.edu.au forward slash Undeceptions. Morling, by the way, is spelt M-O-R-L-I-N-G dot E-D-U dot A-U forward slash Undeceptions. To the most glorious King Cheerwolf, from Bede the Priest and Servant of Christ. Some while ago, at your Majesty's request, I gladly sent you the history of the English Church and people, which I had recently completed, in order that you might read it and give it your approval. I now send it once again to be transcribed, so that your Majesty may consider it at greater leisure. I warmly welcome the diligent zeal and sincerity with which you study the words of Holy Scripture and your eager desire to know something of the doings and sayings of men of the past and of famous men of your own nation in particular. For if history records good things of good men, the thoughtful hearer is encouraged to imitate what is good. Or if it records evil of wicked men, the devout religious listener or reader. These are the opening lines of the ecclesiastical history of the English people, completed by Bede in the year 731, when he was nearly 60 years old. Bede's history was modelled in part on the much earlier ecclesiastical history by the Greek historian Eusebius of Caesarea, who wrote shortly after the death of Emperor Constantine, way back in 337. By the way, 
Eusebius may have influenced our intellectual world more than many could possibly imagine. One of the greatest contemporary scholars of historiography, that's the study of the history of writing, was Arnaldo Momigliano of the University College London and then the University of Chicago. He argued, and he's not a Christian, that Eusebius is the true father of history writing in our modern sense of telling a narrative replete with verified primary sources quoted throughout. That's a model we assume now, but it was an innovation of Eusebius. And Bede followed it and gave it to the Western world. If you want to follow that up, it's in Professor Mimigliano's book, Unreal Book, The Classical Foundations of Modern Historiography. That's just for free today. I don't mean the book, I mean that tip. Anyway, if Eusebius is the father of ancient Christian history, Bede is often referred to as the father of English history. The five-volume compendium tells the story of the arrival and spread of Christianity in England and the emergence of Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Bede's history is rich in detail and at times almost poetic, like his record of the conversion of King Edwin of Northumbria on the advice of his nobles. Your Majesty, when we compare the present life of man on earth with that time of which we have no knowledge, it seems to me like the swift flight of a single sparrow through the banqueting hall where you are sitting at dinner on a winter's day with your thanes and counsellors. In the midst, there is a comforting fire to warm the hall. Outside, the storms of winter rain or snow are raging. This sparrow flies swiftly in through one door of the hall and out through another. While he is inside, he is safe from the winter storms. But after a few moments of comfort, he vanishes from sight into the wintry world from which he came. Even so, man appears on earth for a little while. But of what went before this life, or of what follows, we know nothing. Therefore, if this new teaching has brought any more certain knowledge, it seems only right that we should follow it. The strength of the ecclesiastical history of the English people as a historical source lies in Bede's tenacity in ensuring the work was as accurate as possible. For his sources, he claimed the authority of ancient letters, the traditions of our forefathers, personal interviews, and his own knowledge of broader events. He also asked traveling monks to consult the Vatican's libraries on his behalf, and he incorporated evidence from witnesses scattered across Europe. He ends up quoting around 144 different sources and begs scribes to ensure they include all of his annotations so that readers know that he's not just ripping off other people's work. He's actually relying on sources since, he says, I do not want to be thought a thief in putting down as mine what is really theirs. About 150 manuscripts of the ecclesiastical history of the English people survive. Now that's huge. We don't have that many manuscripts for Caesar's Wars or Tacitus's Annals of Imperial Rome. Bede was massively popular. Now, the account is stacked with reports of miracles, and I had to ask Sarah about that, so stay tuned. But overall, what this work reveals is a historian who is anxious to find accurate sources and then to record only what he regarded as the best evidence. Bede begins with a geography lesson. Bede wants to locate 
you, his reader, in the place that he's going to talk about before he tries to locate you in time. And so the first word of the, let's leave out the preface to the king. The first word of the history proper is Britannia. Britannia, Oceana Insula, qui quondam Albion nomen fuit, inter septentrionem et occidentem locata est, Germaniae, Galliae, Hispaniae, maximis oropi partibus, multo untervalo adversa. Britain, which used to be called Albion, is an island in the ocean, and it lies to the northwest, being opposite Germany, Gaul, and Spain, which form the greater part of Europe, though at a considerable distance from them. How can you be a monk in Wearmouth on the northeast coast of England, the northeast edge of Britain? And how can you say Britain is an island of the ocean to the northwest? Northwest of where? The words aren't beads. It's an absolute direct quotation from Pliny's Natural History. Pliny was writing either in Rome or in the Bay of Naples, in relation to which Britain is over there mm -hmm. to the northwest. If you look at world maps of this period, they locate north to the left-hand side and east at the top, and they put Jerusalem in the centre with Rome just south of it. And Britain is an island surrounded by water down there in the northwestern corner. How Bede opens his history tells you about how he wants to locate his story. The English, the pagan English, no political unity. There are lots of different kingdoms. There is no really no such thing as the English, but Bede invents them for these purposes. They are a people, a Gentile people living on an island, literally at the ends of the known world. So in space, he puts them in the island at the edge of the world. In time, he locates their story in relation to the story of the Roman Empire. And so he starts by reference to Julius Caesar coming and the Roman conquest of Britain. And then through the history, he offers you this punctuation of who the emperors are, because that's a fixed timeline into which to fit this people who had been part of ancient Rome and are now part of Rome that is the world of Christendom and the Rome of the East, of the new Rome of the Eastern Church in Byzantium. So located in time and space in the widest possible sphere. And his story takes you from Julius Caesar up to Bede's own day. And he finishes his history with a look round the island of Britain in his own day. And then he ends with a quotation from the Psalms, let the earth rejoice in God's perpetual kingdom and let Britain rejoice in his faith and let the multitude of the isles be glad and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. So that sounds to me like that passage in Isaiah about the islands one day hoping in the Lord, you know, the faraway peoples hoping in the Lord. My servant will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. And that's how Bede sees people and this idea that it's the island nature of the English that is one of the things that distinguishes them. And he's absolutely bouncing off. There's a whole series of psalm resonances also to, to island peoples and how they will come to know God. 
So that, but he, of course, he believes that apart from Ireland, he believes that there are not more islands beyond them. He really thinks they are at the ends of the earth because one of the underpinning things that Bede believed is the extent to which the conversion of the English and the adoption of all the people in the island of Britain of the correct Catholic Easter was one of the, was the fulfillment of one of the necessary conditions for the second coming. So Bede's interpretation of Christ's last words to his apostles as he stood on Mount Sinai before the ascension, he said, take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And, Matthew, and in Matthew's gospel, he'd already said, when the gospel is preached to the ends of the earth, then the end will come. The English are the ends of the earth. The preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth fulfills one of the preconditions for the second coming. And so its importance, that's why this is set in relation to incarnational history. This is something that always had to happen. The English were a people whom God had always foreknown and their bringing inside wider Christendom is part of God's overarching plan for the whole of humanity. At the present time, the Picts have a treaty of peace with the English and are glad to be united in Catholic peace and truth to the Universal Church. The Irish who are living in Britain are content with their own territories and do not contemplate any raids or stratagems against the English. The Britons, for the most part, have a national hatred for the English and uphold their own bad customs against the true Easter of the Catholic Church. However, they are opposed by the power of God and man alike and are powerless to obtain what they want. For although in part they are independent, they have been brought in part under subjection to the English. As such, peace and prosperity prevail in these days. Many of the Northumbrians, both noble and simple, together with their children, have laid aside their weapons, preferring to receive the tonsure and take monastic vows rather than study the arts of war. What the results of this will be, the future will show. Now, some of my skeptical listeners, hearing you talk like this about the theologizing of history, will instantly say, therefore, it can't be history. It's, you know, it's so laden with his doctrines. He's obviously got a schema that he's trying to make it fit the Bible. Is it good history? I mean, really, Sarah, is it any good as history? Nobody writes history without applying their own social, cultural, religious ideas to what it is they're writing. We all write histories that make sense of the past and explain it in ways that matter for us. I wrote my first book about religious women in the church in England through the 1990s at a time when the church in England was battling over whether or not women should be ordained to the priesthood. It, 20 years later, it's absolutely clear that I was playing out those battles through my writing of the past, though I wouldn't say I did that consciously. Bede is overt about what his overarching message is. He's very clear that he is... He's not hiding the ball. He doesn't. It's not as if you need in any sense to unpick this to find it. It's there in plain sight in front of you, does that make it bad history? You, if you have to take account of everybody's preconceptions and 
preconceived ideas, then maybe it's helpful to have somebody that you know what it is that they're doing. What of it that do, is it that you want to get rid of because it's been tied into an evangelical message, it's designed to be fulfilling the gospel. It is in many ways written as a direct continuation of the Acts of the Apostles. And the more I think about that, the more obvious a parallel it is. Acts of the Apostles starts with the Ascension, and it takes you from Jerusalem through the early work of the Apostles. And then the second half of Acts concentrates on Paul, it takes you on a maritime journey through the Mediterranean, and finally, it takes you to Rome. Bede's history starts locating England in relation to Rome. It starts with Caesar and his conquest of Britain. It takes you on a maritime journey to Britain and then up the eastern seaboard of Britain. And then at the end of his history, he has one chapter where he takes us back to the holy places and to Jerusalem. And when I was an undergraduate, I never understood what the chapter on the holy places was for. I didn't see it. But now I think it's because he's just reminding us this is a story that began at this point with the injunction to the apostles before the ascension. And he's just reminding you that there's a kind of complete circle. But then I return to my question, is it junk history as a result of this? I mean, is he careful? Is he measured? Does he use sources? Do you get a sense that you're reading someone who's trying to really tell you what happened? It is not Bede's intention to describe for us who were the kings of the different kingdoms, how they were related to one another, how they won battles against one another. But that's what we use it for. Can we rely on him? When it comes to chronology, I think we really can because of the efforts that we can see him going to, to reconcile different written and oral sources that he's got that tell you about king's reigns and measure them together. He uses documentary sources. One seventh of the text of the history is copied out papal letters. The fact that he has consulted lots of texts, he sent a monk from Canterbury to Rome to bring that materials for him. He wrote round the church in England and asked people for sources. He's very careful about who his witnesses are. This was told me by this venerable bishop who was there. This was told by a venerable bishop to somebody who told me. This is something that they say in monasteries. This is what the people say. He's got a clear gradation of who his sources are. We can learn more about what England was like in the 7th century from Bede than from any other single source. If we were to say it's just Christian propaganda, then there's an awful lot that we're missing out on. Bede isn't afraid to record some embarrassing bumps along the way. Like the story of how King Redwald of East Anglia decided to have an each-way bet by constructing a church that had a Christian Lord's table at one end and, I kid you not, a pagan altar at the other end. It reminds me of the jeweler's mould I mentioned in the Vikings episode. It was found in Denmark, dating to the Middle Viking period, and it was designed to make a mould of a cross pendant for Christian customers and a Thor's hammer for pagan Vikings. Anyway, bead is great fun to read. But there is that pesky problem of the miracles. Can I just go to another issue about credibility and history? It's full of miracles. So does that mean the whole thing is junk? I mean, I, I don't personally think that, but a lot of my listeners will think if they open up Bede, you're about page five before you get a miracle. 
not quite that far, but it's true there are a lot of miracles and book four contains a disproportionate number of miracles. He was writing for an audience that expected God to be active in the world around them every day. And part of his overarching argument about why this one Christian God is the God you should be following is that he's showing that God is still active in the lives of humanity in his own day, that God is not about a pastime. We're not reading about in the Bible about what happened in Israel and what happened in after the, the life of Christ, and that's in the past. He's saying this is a living religion where God does things now. So I think the miracles are there to speak to a Christian audience to show that prayer to God is efficacious. We don't think that's how God works in the world today. And we might want to disentangle many of these miracles and offer skeptical modern scientific explanations for them. But if we look at some of his stories, we might want to see what he tells us incidentally around the story of the miracle that he's telling and what it is we then learn about agriculture, seafaring, the religious life, relations between monastic communities and the lay people among whom they left, lived, farming techniques, how you build buildings, all sorts of incidental insight into daily life. And why would he make up the background to these stories if the purpose for him is that the guy who fell off the ladder when he was involved in building the church at Hexham actually lived? That's the point of the story for us. For him, we are quite interested in the fact of the having the ladder to be carrying the stones up to be building the next story mm. and how that building work was done among a people who had no tradition of building in stone. So the whole technology, it's completely new to them. Let's press pause. I've got a five minute Jesus for you. Let me be clear, I believe in miracles, at least in the case of Jesus, and maybe even in the case of the Venerable Bede. Actually, the case for Jesus is pretty easy. The lines of evidence indicating that he enjoyed a strong reputation as a healer are compelling. And so even scholars who don't believe in miracles at the philosophical level accept that Jesus did things that looked like miracles at the historical level. I'm thinking of scholars like Paula Fredrickson, uh, but she's one of many who openly admit that they don't believe God suspends the laws of nature, but then adds, and I'm quoting Paula Fredrickson here, yes, I think Jesus probably did perform deeds that contemporaries viewed as miracles. And she lists healings and exorcisms as what seemed to her to be historically plausible. This is because if historical methods mean anything, they certainly demonstrate how early and widespread is the evidence for Jesus' healing work. We've got 13 references in Mark, which is the earliest gospel, around 65. Uh, we've got four in Q, that's the source behind Matthew and Luke's gospel. There's another five in L, that's the source behind Luke's gospel. Two in M, that's Matthew's unique source from around the year 60. Seven in SQ, or Aquila, the sign source behind the gospel of John. And to this, we can add as secondary evidence two references to healing in Jesus' name. One is in Paul from around 55 AD. One is in James from around AD 62, or perhaps a little uh, before that, because we know James was killed in that year. 
The fact that Jesus' name is appealed to as effective for healing strongly suggests that both authors knew that Jesus had a healing reputation. Now, to this list of seven sources, we can add the first century Jewish writer Josephus, who's writing toward the end of the first century, who describes Jesus as one who wrought surprising feats. And the expression surprising feats translates the Greek paradoxa erga, literally baffling deeds. It's the Jewish historian's hesitant, non-committal way of talking about Jesus' widespread fame as a miracle worker. He did weird deeds. And the other interesting thing is, we simply don't have this level of evidence, eight separate sources within living memory of the figure, for any other claimed miracle worker from the ancient world. We have Honi the circle drawer, a Jewish rabbi who died a generation before Jesus. He reportedly prayed and made it rain in Jerusalem during a great drought. But we only have two sources for his miracle working. One comes from 150 years after Honi was dead, and the other comes from 250 years after he was dead. People often point to Apollonius of Tyana as a good pagan parallel to Jesus. He was a Pythagorean philosopher who died a generation after Jesus, around the year 100. But we only have one source for his miracle working, and it's dated 120 years after Apollonius is dead. In the case of Jesus, as I said, we have eight separate sources, and they're all within living memory. That's within 60 years of the events themselves. We just have the evidence you'd expect a miracle worker to leave behind in the case of Jesus. The real question isn't about evidence. There is good evidence. The real question is, what are our background beliefs? The philosophical discussion about miracles has been stuck in a grumpy stalemate for well over a century. Because if I hold one view of the universe, I'll be compelled to deny miraculous evidence. If I hold a different view of the universe, I can remain logically open to that evidence. So to put it like this, if I reckon the laws of nature define the limits of what's possible in the universe, that there's no lawgiver, no God that exists behind the laws, then of course, in principle, miracles can't be viewed as rational and no amount of evidence could be accepted as evidence that a miracle has taken place. But if I hold that the laws of nature don't define the limits of what's possible, that the laws themselves point to a lawgiver or a mind, a God behind the laws, then since such a lawgiver could act through and beyond the natural laws, it is in principle rational to believe in the possibility of miracles. And I'm free to accept a miracle when there's good evidence in its favor. And as I say, the evidence in the case of Jesus is just good. But what about the miracles reported by the Venerable Bede? Well, I've read the history of the English people from start to finish, and I'm convinced Bede does not make stuff up. He is, in the judgment of most people who read him, a good faith reporter. Now, maybe three quarters of the miracles he reports, he wasn't in a position to know firsthand what the facts were. He openly admits that he just receives testimony from others whom he trusted. And those others are the ones who actually saw the stuff. So honestly, I don't know what to do with that. But a few of the miracles, the ones he has direct knowledge of, I'm willing to say they probably happened. My view of the universe is that there is a God behind the laws of nature that gives me the freedom to remain open to miracles where the evidence seems compelling. 
Now, I don't think the evidence in Bede is as historically compelling as the evidence in the Gospels, but it's not bad. You can press play now. Quite a bit of academic ink has been spilt on Bede's attitude towards women. Most of it, though, is speaking into silence because, frankly, Bede doesn't have much to say, which perhaps is part of the problem. The role and influence of women in the Middle Ages just isn't Bede's point. But there is still a little bit of stuff we can learn here. What women pop up in the history or in any of his other writings, what can we say about his attitude to women? His attitude to women is something that historians do debate about quite a bit. He doesn't talk about women other than those who are of elite and mostly royal status. He talks about the wives of kings, and he talks about the relatives of kings, daughters, sisters, cousins who who go and enter religious houses. He doesn't give very many of those women a huge amount of agency. But that's probably because, if we're being brutally honest, they didn't have massive amounts of agency. But one of the ways in which women could be independent and powerful, politically and economically powerful, was by becoming abbesses of monasteries. And he does talk about a large number of women, royal women, who are running monasteries. So Hild at Whitby, Adolthrith, Ethelreda at Ely, the nuns of the community at Barking. He talks about quite a lot of female communities. So book four, which has the most miracles, also has by a very long way the largest number of women in it. But they're all being described in monastic contexts and, and often telling us stories about things that relate to miracles. So the nuns at Barking, which is a double house of men and women, and the house is attacked by plague. There was a huge outbreak of plague in England in the 60s. Lots of religious died. In the community, they had a graveyard for the monks, but they didn't have a graveyard for the nuns, but the nuns were dying of plague as well. And they didn't know where to bury their bodies because they couldn't put them in the boys' graveyard. They just thought that wouldn't be right. And then there's a miracle at night and God shines the light on the other side of the monastery where there's a perfectly suitable patch of ground on which they can then decide to bury their female dead. And incidentally, in those stories about barking and women who are dying of plague, we have a miracle related about a little boy who's three years old. And suddenly you've got a whole new vesta into this monastery. Not only has it got men and women living together in a community with an abbess in charge, there are children there as well. And that raises a whole series of other questions. What are the children doing? Are these children of the nuns they had before they went into the nunnery? Are they children that have been born while they were inside the nunnery, which you would seem to think was probably not entirely Were the they point. Following celibacy strictly, uh, they I mean, are, doctrinally, yes, yes in this yes. period. Yeah. But are they looking after orphan children like Bede, who's been put into the religious life because he was an orphan and being raised in the community? Many women joined the religious life having been married before. Did they bring their small children with them? All sorts of things that are raised by what looks like a miracle story about the light, a light shining in in the darkness to show you where to have a graveyard. You can. All sorts of ways you can get an insight into what English society was like. In heaven's courts, from which height I have come, are many gems so precious and so lovely that they cannot be taken from the kingdom. See, the flames breathed forth by Isidore, by Bede, 
and by that Richard whose contemplations saw all that a mere man can see and more. Dante Algieri, The Divine Comedy. Bede makes his way into Dante. I think he's the only Englishman in The Divine Comedy. He is the only Englishman in The Divine And what do you know, he's in paradise, unlike a lot of popes. Of course Bede's in paradise. (laughs) So he was obviously revered back in Italy in the centuries that followed. Is that right? Bede's books were being copied in Europe almost before he died. His texts are very widely circulated in the Carolingian world and widely copied. Many of our surviving manuscripts of Bede's works are not English at all, but survive from continental houses. The great Carolingian king Charlemagne asked Paul the deacon to compile for him a book of homilies, sermons to be read to monks through in the night office throughout the year. And he produced a series of readings for reading at night in the winter when the office is longer, and then a summer homiliary. And nearly a third of the texts in Paul the Deacon's homiliary are quotations from the writings of the Venerable Bede. Bede's sermons are there, but also great chunks of his biblical commentaries are put into the night office for reading. And that became the standard book of readings for the night office in monasteries across Western Europe from the 8th century onwards. So Bede is being copied, read, prayed with ceaselessly from his own day. It's scarcely surprising that the monks of Durham in their new cathedral in the late 11th century should have taken the trouble to go to Jarrow where he was buried and steal his bones to give them some nice relics to put in the back of their cathedral. He was already famous by the end of the 11th century and continues to be read throughout the later Middle Ages, scholastic readers reading and commenting further on Bede's commentaries. Bede died on the floor of his cell at the monastery in Jarrow on May 25, AD 735. He was hard at work until his very last day, dictating to a scribe from his deathbed. And when he'd finished, he got on his knees and sang the Gloria, an ancient liturgical hymn or prayer. Near the end of the Gloria, so among Bede's final words, it says... Thou that takest away the sins of the world, receive our prayer. Thou that sittest at the right hand of God the Father, have mercy upon us. Bede's last line in the ecclesiastical history of the English people conveys a similar sentiment. And I pray thee, loving Jesus, he writes, that as thou hast graciously given me to drink in with delight the words of thy knowledge, so thou wouldst mercifully grant me to attain one day to thee, the fountain of all wisdom, and to appear forever before thy face. Bede's monastery at Jarrow was sacked by the Vikings in the 8th century, but the bones of Bede were recovered in the 11th century and translated to the cathedral at Durham, where they now lie in the Galilee Chapel. Go check them out next time you're there.
His works continued to have a profound effect for centuries to come, inspiring future generations with a new way of seeing themselves. Alfred the Great took from Bede the view that the English could be seen as a single people, united under a single king, and most importantly, under one true God. And of course, those works are continuing to have a profound effect. Sarah Foote says they not only gave direction to her academic studies, they've shaped her devotional life, as well as her conception of Christian community. I have a final question, a double barrel question. If someone listening to us would go, oh, I might go and read Bede, right? which I hope they do. What would you hope someone would gain from the Venerable Bede? And can you answer this in two ways? A modern Christian believer, what would they gain? What would you like them to gain from Bede? But I'm also thinking of someone who doesn't believe and they take the time to read a bit of Bede. What do you hope they might get? If I start with your non-believer, I hope that they would take away a sense of the richness and the sophistication of the culture in England in the first Christian centuries, to the extent that there could be somebody at the very edges of this island, at the very edges of the world, who had the resources to write such vivid text about his own people and his own day and bring that to life. And somebody who might read the accounts of the battles and the stories about kings and the story about the Thane who spoke of comparing the Christian life to that of a sparrow flying through a king's hall in the winter and have visual pictures painted for them and get a sense of the riches and vibrancy of Anglo-Saxon England, which is not remotely a dark age. Indeed. <laughs> and that a Christian reader might might think about the ways in which the Mediterranean faith that Christ taught to his disciples, which they then took systematically to the ends of the world, has been gradually adapted and acculturated to the places in which it finds itself, and how scripture is at the bedrock of mission and evangelization, but that it also plays a really major role in the building of Christian nations. And that's a faith that Bede's history and his other writings seek to explain to them and explain to them in ways that made sense for their culture and in their own writing, in their own language. So when Bede was on his deathbed, he was engaged in translating one of the books of the Bible because he thought it would be helpful for mission and evangelization. And I've always been bemused. You've got the whole Bible to choose from to translate into English. Yet he started with St. John's Gospel. And I've often pondered why I'd have chosen a synoptic so much easier to get to yeah. grips with, so many easier stories. Did Bede think that St. John's Gospel contained everything that's necessary for salvation? And that's why he thought that encapsulates the Christian message. And that's why that's the book he chose. We have no idea. He didn't get very far. He got as far as the feeding of the 5,000. Well, he got that great incarnation passage in at least, didn't he? He did. He did indeed. But that Christianity builds nations mm. is what, what Bede's history demonstrates. And that's something that today's Christians can also be reinforced by. We 
got more of my chat with Sarah Foote over on our new YouTube channel. So you can watch us as well as listen. Just search for Underceptions. While you're there, check out some of our other video content, including short, shareable animations based on our most popular episodes. We'll have heaps more content coming down the pipeline in the next few months. I really hope you like it. And if you like what we're doing, there are a bunch of other ways you can help us out. Head to Apple Podcasts and give us a review, or you can go to underceptions.com and pick up one of our t-shirts from the store. And if you want to help our expanding team, please consider making a donation. I know I talk about this a bit, but what you give really helps. I personally don't need a salary, but the production and personnel costs for Underceptions are pretty big. Go to underceptions.com, click the oversized donate button and see where the wind blows. And while you're there, send us a question by audio or text and I'll try answer it in an upcoming Q&A episode. See ya. Underceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Katie Payne and directed by the venerable Mark Hadley. Boom. Sophie Hawkshaw is on socials and membership. Alistair Belling is writer and researcher. Siobhan McGuinness is our online librarian. Santino DeMarco is our chief financial and operations consultant. And Lindy Leveston remains my wonderful assistant. Oh, yeah. And editing is by Rich Humwee. Woohoo! Special thanks to our series sponsor, Zondervan Academic, for making this Undeception possible. Undeceptions is the flagship podcast of Undeceptions.com, letting the truth out. An Undeceptions podcast.